You're listening to the Safety Work Podcast, episode 27. Today, we're asking the question, what makes a team effective? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven. And I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety Work Podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, what's today's question? David, our question for today is pretty simple. It's what makes a team effective? So because the question's simple, I don't think we need a lot of background on the question itself. What we wanted to do with this episode, though, was find a paper that could summarize all of the recent research on a topic outside of safety so that we could then look at, you know, what's the most interesting and latest research out there on teams and then talk about how that matters for safety. So I thought there was like no background at all needed, but David, you've snuck into our notes that we need to define what a team is. So when we talk about a team, we're basically, we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about more than one individual. Uh, we're talking about people who interact socially at work, either face-to-face or virtually in some way, who have some sort of common goal and are brought together to work together on the accomplishment of tasks. And we need to recognize that that happens inside a broader organizational system. If your team is your entire organization, then there's not much point in studying the team. You may as well just study the organization. And so when it comes to researching teams, the main idea is just what sort of unit do we study? Uh, We could look at whole organizations. We could look at individuals. Or we can look at this intermediate step where we have this small dynamic building block that we can study as a single thing, recognizing that it's part of something bigger, but not focusing too much on that bigger context, focusing on the dynamics within the team. The other question we need to sort of quickly talk about is, what does it mean for a team to be effective? And we're actually taking this fairly straight from the paper we're going to study today. There are two sorts of outcomes that a team can have. There are very tangible outcomes. What are the deliverables that the team needs to produce? And we can measure those things in terms of productivity, efficiency, quality of the outputs. Or there's influences on the team members. So how does it affect the relationships in the team? Or how does it individually affect the attitudes, reactions, learning, and behaviors of people within the team? So to bring all that back, we're asking what makes a team effective? We've defined what a team is. We've defined some idea of what we think your effectiveness is. Uh, So, David, do you want to tell us a little bit about the paper itself? Yeah, so the paper that you found, Drew, was titled Embracing Complexity, Reviewing the Past Decade of Team Effectiveness Research. So this paper was published in the Annual Review of Organisational Psychology and Organisational Behaviour. So it's, it's a journal that pretty much only publishes review articles, and it only publishes a few articles each year. So each article that it publishes kind of aims to capture the state of knowledge on a particular topic. So these papers tend to be very highly cited and they tend to be very highly regarded. And Drew, when you found this paper, you did a bit of um, research into the authors. So do you want to 
tell our listeners a little bit about who the authors were of this? Because this was a large, a large review to try and look at a decade of uh, research into team effectiveness. Yes. Yeah, so, so we've talked on the podcast before about why we talk about the authors. It's not because being the right author automatically means we believe everything you say. But there's a lot that we need to trust the authors about, that they've selected the right research, that they've summarised it appropriately, that they've given us a fair interpretation. In this particular case, the authors are all from the same department. It's the management department of the University of Connecticut. Uh, They're John Matthew, Peter Gallagher, Monique Domingo, and Elizabeth Clock. The first author, uh, John Matthew, He seems a bit like the research equivalent of a rock star who's also anonymous. So you expect when someone's like researching leadership or teams that they're going to be doing TED Talks, they're going to be publishing books on how to make your team more effective, how to be a good team leader. As far as I can tell, this guy's done none of that stuff. But if you look at his academic work, it's received tens of thousands of citations. So I don't know, you know, maybe the people with the big exciting ideas give the TED Talks and the real sort of down and gritty experts prepare annual review articles. Um, the other authors, as far as I can tell, they appear to be either grad students or the research assistants of the first author. So this is like a team of junior people together with a leader uh, putting together a summary of the literature. And he probably, and he started, I think the review started from memory, Drew, with about 1500 articles. And you'll talk a little bit about the style of review in a second. And then they ended up cutting that down to five or 600, which they reviewed in detail. So you're going to need a little bit of a team to uh, read through all of those papers to actually pull out the information that you need to to publish a sort of a comprehensive review like this one. So, so not just for reading the individual papers, but also for knowing which papers to include and which papers to ignore. I, I'd describe this paper probably best as a non-systematic review, but fairly thorough. So in a totally systematic review, you're using the like human equivalent of a computer algorithm to decide what's in and out. You know, you're searching for particular keywords in particular places and with very strict rules. This one tends to lean more heavily on the expertise of the researchers to decide what's relevant and important. So it explicitly focuses on a few key quality journals rather than searching big databases. And it only incorporates stuff outside of those journals selectively when the research team just decided that it mattered. They knew that on this particular topic, there was something interesting published, something else. There's a strong focus on finding meta-analysis articles So on sort of working out what the questions are and then saying, has someone published a comprehensive answer to this question? So Drew, can you give us an overview of those four categories of of things that affect team performance? Sure. So the first one is what they call compositional features. So that's basically who is in the team. So looking at things like personality of team membership, looking at diversity within the team. The second one is structural features, which is how the team is linked, who talks to who, how they communicate, how they're set up, how the leadership relates, You know whether it's one leader of the team or multiple leaders of the team. The third one is mediating mechanisms. So this is anything other than those first two things that affect the performance of the team. So things like leadership characteristics would be considered as a mediating mechanism, or the use of particular technology might be considered a mediating mechanism. And the final one is context, which is things outside the team that affect the way the team itself behaves and performs. 
So to give some idea of why they picked those four things, it's worth pointing out a very common framework that gets used in team or leadership research. And it's something that actually that this review ends up being quite critical of. They call it the IPO framework or input process outputs. So that's the idea that you have your input, what goes into the team, your process, what the team does, and then your outputs, what the team produces. And you can measure each of those things, often by surveys, and that's where you get like really easy answers. You The inputs, who you put into the team, it'd be lovely to know that, you know, putting a diverse team is better than putting a homogeneous team. It'd be lovely to know that, you know, extroverts in a team are better than introverts. The process is about how you structure and train the team. It would be lovely to know that, you know, if you send people on a team building exercise, there will be a better performing team. And then the outputs are like straightforward measurements of what you get from those inputs and process. And one of the lessons throughout this paper is that most research into teams follows this framework. And as a result, the research is hugely contradictory about any question you could possibly ask about a team. For almost any question you ask, there's a dozen papers that give different answers. I might just throw in a quote that comes near the end of the paper, just as a preview before we get into it. It says, despite all the progress in recent years, we believe that workgroup research is poised to enter a new era. Widespread adoption of the IPO framework, the ease of survey data collection, and the scholars' desire to conduct field investigations and employ sophisticated statistical techniques have combined to yield a prototypical research design where members' reports of teams' properties are associated with some index of their effectiveness. Rich observational studies are few and far between, field experiments are uncommon, and action research is all but absent in the team's literature. That doesn't sound uh, too inconsistent with our manifesto paper from episode 20, Drew. I think you could just swap out teams and put in safety, and it's exactly it. Uh, people want simple models, they want to collect data using surveys, and they want to put their sophistication into the statistical analysis of the surveys rather than into rigorous data collection. But I don't want to be pessimistic because we picked this paper because we think it actually has some useful things to say and talk about. I just wanted to give you that warning up front that the useful and interesting things aren't going to be simple recipes. They're not going to be simple, clear statements about this works for teams, this doesn't work for teams. But the picture of the overall research gives a lot of ideas of different things we can think about teams, different ways we can think about improving teams, different ways we can think about improving teams' research. So we'll dive into each one in turn, starting with structural which is mostly about you know, how the team communicates. If you think of the team as a network, how does that network work? Yeah, Drew, I think um, that's a good way you described it. And we'll talk about, we'll start with the structural characteristics in a minute. But I, at least when I read it, it was, um, you know, there were lots of things that I found to be quite practical and quite interesting takeaways. But I would just echo your comments there. In almost all of the areas that we're going to talk about, there was generally a finding that, generally the discussion went something like, this impacts this, except in this case, or this impacts this to some degree, but then there was another piece of research that said that it didn't. And so we'll point out a few of those areas just so that we can make it clear where there's um, where there's sort of alignment amongst the research in a particular area or where there's not. So when we come into um, structural, the structural design of teams, and I, and I thought of these as a little bit like the design of the teams, Drew, like how you set up a team. 
And so when we start by thinking about the management of a team, so one study found that really high performance managerial practices, so having good knowledge management systems so people can find the information that they need, good models of decentralized decision making so people were able to make decisions they needed to, and good systems of work, good clear processes for the team to work through, were positively associated with effectiveness. And I think also in that, when we think about managerial practices, there was another interesting study, um, albeit from a sports team, that found if a key player of a team was missing, Drew, that the other members of the team actually reduced their interactions and the remaining members didn't actually experiment with new, new approaches. So almost when the key member of the team was gone, they almost lost their confidence to play their natural game. So I, I love the idea of using a hockey team both as a team to research but also as a metaphor for any other team. The beautiful thing about hockey or soccer, particularly as sports, is that you can clearly see all of the interactions between the team members because they're very obvious, particularly when the teams are passing the ball from one person to another. That's a really obvious interaction. And in the study of the hockey teams, they could see that there were a couple of key players, the playmakers, and everything that the team does revolves around interactions with these people. You've got a really highly skilled center, so you tend to pass the ball to them, everyone else runs around, and then they feed the ball out to the appropriate place. And then they found that if you remove that highly skilled center, that doesn't change the strategy of the team. And they still keep trying this same strategy of you pass it to the center, run around, and then feed it out again, except the strategy is no longer working very well and there are fewer passes going on because you sort of lack that key player who was making that particular team strategy work. I think that's a great metaphor that if you've got one person within your team who is handling the interactions, creating the interactions, making sure the team works, and that person disappears, it's not just that the team can keep on doing what they were doing before, um, but teams will tend to just keep trying to keep with the same strategy. Yeah, so we'll try to we'll try to hone in on these um, key takeaways because we're going to talk about a lot of different aspects of team performance. So in those early structural ones, setting teams up for success with clear work processes, clear information, clear decision making, knowing who the team players are and making sure sure they're knowing who the key players are. Sorry, and making sure they're present is going to improve your team effectiveness. And then Drew, there was a there was a lot of discussion in the research about task scope and complexity. And in this area, there was lots of conflicting research. So is a simple task make a team more effective or does a more complex task make it more effective? Does a team operate differently when it's a simple task or when it's a complex task? And I got a little bit, I must admit, I got a little bit confused in this research about task complexity. Uh, but, it, but it seems that if you are researching teams, you really need to think about how complex the task is because it's going to change the way the team functions. Is that, uh, is that the way of thinking about it? Yeah, I think the underlying question of most of this type of research is how do you set up the team leadership? So they're talking about things like in a surgical team, is it better to have the surgeon in a sort of command and control mode, or is it better to have joint leaders or delegated authority or lots of the team members working autonomously? And where the task complexity comes in is that the answers to those questions change depending on what the task is. For some tasks, it's really important to have a single leader. For other tasks, the team is much more effective with joint authority or very delegated authority across the team. But the research is conflicting because there's no simple answer like as the task gets more complicated, then you should move towards more delegated authority. 
It's like if the task is already very complicated, then a small change in complexity means you should move this way. If the task is already very simple, then it means the opposite. So yeah, clear takeaway, task complexity matters. Very unclear takeaway. What do you do with that information? And I think at the end of the day for a team, and the task is the task, and uh, let's use the research to understand how to set the team up and, and the individuals within that team up around the task that they're going to complete. Um, so one of the things that is very useful out of this structural research is it points out a lot of the features of a team which can be manipulated because uh, researchers love to tinker with teams in order to research. So you can look at all of the different variables that are worth studying and that therefore also presumably are worth trying to manage in real world situations. So there's a bit of a list they give. Um, you can manipulate how the resources are parceled out. Uh, your time, money, access to other people. You can manipulate the workflows. You can manipulate how goals and rewards are assigned, whether they're set, set for individuals and then rewarded for individuals or set for the team and rewarded for the team. And then you can look at how things like team trust or teamwork processes influence those structural features. And we're going to talk later, Drew, about um, trust and teamwork processes and team cognition and cohesion and those types of things. I think the interesting part here structurally is, yeah, we'll talk about how those all matter for team effectiveness later, but you can actually uh, mediate for those things through these formal uh, structural aspects like resources, workflows, goals, rewards. So if you give the teams the right amount of resources, a very clear workflow process, clear goals and rewards, then you can still get an effective team even when you may not have the levels of trust and cognition and cohesion that might otherwise make your team effective. So it's good to know that you can actually look at a team and know whether, based on how the team's performing, whether, um, as we talk about later, whether structural features or some of the more internal features of the team are going to be better to improve performance. Thanks, David. I think that's a really useful way of interpreting the research. Um, and then the final one is actually the reverse side of that. So a topic that comes up a lot in the research is virtual teams. Yeah. Who would have guessed that Teams meeting over Zoom was going to be you know, topical and relevant and a hot button topic. And there the research sort of says the converse of what you're just saying, which is that where you don't have a lot of those normal structural features, then you can compensate for that with things like trust. That you know, if teams have reduced ability to communicate because they're virtual, then things like trust and cohesion and common understanding are going to be very important in the effectiveness of the team. I think there'll be a lot of people around the world who are finding out just how much trust there is in their team at the moment by how well they're working together virtually. I think you measure the trust in the team by how much your boss insists that the video camera is on to check that you're actually sitting at your desk rather than trying to juggle 15 other things while you handle the team meeting. Yep, including homeschooling. So then, so there were the structural features and, and let's move on to the compositional features because this aspect of the, the paper was based on more than 150 studies. And this is about looking who is in the team and what are the characteristics of those individuals within the team. And as you mentioned earlier, Drew, things like how diverse is, is the team and, um, and, and a little bit about how they work together. So there's also some really interesting structural features that we'll uh, talk about, but these are sort of, sort of tied into the comp compositional area for, for some reason. But we'll talk about fault lines a little bit later, Drew, and I found this really interesting um, to, to think about teams within teams. But let's, let's start with average member attributes. So this is where we start looking at a team and going, on average, what does this team look like and how does it perform? And so, Drew, 
surprisingly or unsurprisingly, teams that have a higher average level of expertise and a higher average level of mental or cognitive ability tend to perform better. Yeah, I'd love to know who thought that that one was worth researching. Uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe the sort of underlying theory was that teams destroy competence or something. But yeah, so yeah, if you're looking at like average composition of your team, then having better people in the team results in a better team on average. I think the more interesting one, and this one did surprise me just how consistent this does come out, is that you can actually predict team performance based on average personality traits in the team. Listeners may know that I'm fairly skeptical of research that makes use of personality traits to predict other things. But there's a fairly consistent finding that the average conscientiousness, agreeableness, and extroversion, which are three factors in the commonly accepted Big Five model of personality, predict team performance. Now, now remember that these are average, so we're not saying you, know, you should aim for this in every team member. But the, the way it goes is that where, on average, those three factors are high, you get a lot more cooperative and helping and engagement behaviours within the team, which in turn leads to better productivity and effectiveness on tasks. Yeah, this seems a little bit obvious, but I was also a little bit surprised at how consistently it was found in the research. So when we think it's probably worth um, restating it for people as a, as a takeaway right now, but conscientiousness, so how well each member of the team on average is focused on the task and paying attention to the needs of the team. Agreeableness, like how able is the team to align and agree and move forward with the task they're performing. And then extroversion, which we, we in a team setting, the ability to make your contribution and, and lean in and speak up. So those are really, those are three interesting traits. If you're, if you're selecting team members, but like you said, Drew, it's not the traits themselves, it's the behaviours that tend to be displayed by people with those traits um, that, are, that matter. Yes, and in fact, there is some research that speaks directly to this, which says that directly measuring emotional intelligence, which I think can fairly be summarised as the way in which those personality traits manifest as interpersonal behaviours, is a better predictor than personality. So rather than giving someone a straight your personality test and putting in all of your extroverts and keeping out all of your introverts. Probably what you really want to do is um, test based as much on behaviours rather than psychometrics as possible on who is displaying those cooperation, leaning in, willing to seek agreement type behaviours in the team. Yeah. Andrew, the next, the next compositional feature was diversity. And there's um, a lot of general information about diversity and team effectiveness, I think, in the general press, which generally says that diverse teams are better performing teams. I think that would be a general conclusion of the popular press. So, But here in this analysis, they split diversity into three different types, which they call surface diversity, deep diversity, and functional diversity. So just let's, let's go through each of these and then talk about what it means for team effectiveness. So Drew, do you want to start with surface diversity? Sure. So, so surface diversity is the idea of deliberately having people in your team with different ethnic backgrounds or different genders or different ages, you're readily measurable demographic attributes. And the hypothesis is that having a stronger mix leads to a higher performing team. Now, with the caveat that we're talking here specifically about, you know, all else being equal, how well do they work as a team? That's not actually a clear finding from the research at all. If anything, the research tends to point the other way and says that 
you know, with lots of contradictory evidence, some of it suggests that the more diverse a team is, the harder it is for the team to work together and harms performance. Yeah, I had heard, Drew, um, it wasn't mentioned in this paper, but I had heard a finding that diverse teams are less effective with, uh, with simple and known tasks and that diverse teams only become potentially, or surface diversity only becomes potentially more useful uh, in teams facing novel or, or complex challenges and problems. Yeah, the way they do this research, I, I think there's a lot of potential benefits of diversity that the research won't capture. So I think it will tend to score a team that converges on a particular solution to a problem and gets that solution implemented quite highly, even though that solution might only work for a small percentage of the population and they've totally missed out on important ideas. Um, so this isn't like a statement against diversity, but it is a, a clear finding not to be simplistic about how you think of diversity and to recognise that Deliberate attempts to introduce diversity can come at a cost of team efficiency and performance. And there's a couple of studies, and the research is fairly sparse here, so don't take this too heavily, that try to explain why that's the case. And they suggest that leaders' attitudes may be one of those things, that even if you've got diversity, having a leader who sees that as diversity, who tends to categorize people based on external attributes, may increase the harmful effect of diversity. Whereas having a leader who just takes the different mix of people for granted and treats them all just as the same group of people may mean that the diversity leads to a stronger, more highly performing team. That's surface diversity. David, did you want to say anything more about that? No, no, no. I'm happy to to move on from that. I think there's there's a lot to say about that, but uh, but but you've described it well. Um, and it's such an important and um, topical issue for the business world. To, to increase diversity, I think is absolutely necessary for more effective functioning of organisations. It's just, we need to think about diversity beyond just surface diversity. And the two other ways that this paper talks about it is, like I've said, deep level and functional level diversity. So the deep level diversity is looking now at the individual's psychological characteristics, regardless of their surface gender or ethnicity. So these characteristics are things like personality and values and attitudes. And there's a reinforcement here for what you said earlier, Drew, that a lot of the deep level diversity factors seem to produce mixed results, but emotional intelligence consistently seems to be related to improved team performance. So if you go straight from, if, the, if, if mixing up your surface level diversity gives you people with a, with a higher level of emotional intelligence, then that's going to be a good thing. Um, but emotional intelligence seems to be consistently related to improved team performance. Yeah, we, we might touch on this more in the takeaways, but my interpretation of this research, to the extent that there is a consistent message, is that when we talk about trying to improve diversity, there's two separate things we want to improve. There's the diversity itself, and then there's the diversity competence, the ability of people to work with other people of diverse backgrounds, diverse thinking. And you need both. If you just have the diversity without the diversity competence, it reduces performance. If you have both, it seems to be stronger performance. And the third drew um, this functional diversity. I, I was, uh, I think, resonated most with, most with me. And this is this is having people with different backgrounds and people from different functional areas. And what that might mean is putting a team together with someone from human resources and someone from finance, and someone from the safety department, 
And it says that, I suppose the research suggests that functional diversity, as well as um, individual educational diversity, have positive relationships with team performance. So when they talk about functional diversity, they separate this out into the person's sort of dominant function. But then they also look at um, this aspect of the number of their diverse functional experience. And so their dominant function might be they're in the engineering function or they're in the safety function. But there were also some studies that looked at their career functional experience. And there's a saying that I use sometimes, Drew, in business that you can have, you, two people can have 20 years of experience. One can actually have 20 years of diverse experience and one can have one year of experience repeated 20 times. And in this, um, in this research, it suggests that functional diversity in terms of the number of different diverse functional experience a person's had in their career and bringing those people together is better for team performance. Yeah, there there aren't a lot of papers surveyed in this part of the study, but at least they seem to be fairly consistently pointing to the same thing, which is that people who themselves have had diverse backgrounds tend to be able to work and play better with others in a team. So, so diversity matters for team performance. Um, we described three levels, surface, deep, and functional. The obvious one that we work towards, surface diversity, seems to have the least consistent impact on team effectiveness. So we'd probably be concluding here and encouraging people to think broader about diversity, particularly in terms of your team um, team makeup, and just you know understand this um, this deep level diversity around emotional intelligence and understands people people's functional diversity throughout their career and how they might bring that into the team. And so the final compositional factor they look at is the idea of fault lines. So this seems to be an increasing trend in team research to move beyond the sort of what's the average properties of the team or what's the distribution of the team, the diversity, to look at is there some sort of other internal structure? Can we split the team in half and see where one half of the team is more similar and the other half of the team is not? So the real world application of that is this idea of you having a clique in the group. There's one group of people who are very similar, who talk to each other and ignore the other members of the team. And the general idea is this idea that having cliques or fault lines is going to have a negative effect on performance outcomes. And I think, Drew, yeah, so, so I think generally we would assume, as the researchers for a long time have assumed, that uh, these fault lines are bad for teams, any sort of um, divergence or 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 separation between the members of a team isn't isn't great they, they found that this can be moderated by friendship and it can also be enhanced by animosity so if there is fault lines in a team if there is subgroups if there is some reason that there's half the team is at one location and half the team is at another location then if there's actually conflict amongst the groups across that fault line then it will absolutely worsen performance where there's some friendship and social co cohesion across the group then it will moderate the negative effects of those fault lines within within the group. So I think, look, this research is, is really unreliable, even though something like 25 of the 150 papers in this um, part of the review had mentioned fault lines. There's actually no real agreement on how to identify and how to measure what fault lines actually are. And so therefore, this research is kind of fairly, fairly sporadic. But I think the practical takeout, for me at least, would be that if there is some separation within a group or a team, just try to understand you know, what the impact of that might be on performance. And if there is an impact on performance, then when we talk a bit later about things like social cohesion, there's, there's ways of mediating that impact. 
Yeah, I, I was honestly unclear how to interpret this research, mainly because the way they do it is very statistical. It's giving surveys to the members of the team and trying to identify the fault lines based on the survey responses and the statistical analysis, rather than actually talking to the members of the team about who they liked and didn't like. So yeah, it's an interesting topic, perhaps. The statistics don't enlighten it nearly as much as trying to understand what's actually going on within the team. So Drew, once we go past structural and compositional, so we've, we've talked about the sort of the, the structural aspects of, of a team in terms of you know, how they're designed and how they're managed. And then we've talked about the compositional factors about the people who make up the teams and the characteristics of those people. And now there's kind of like a list of, of mediating mechanisms. So these are the things maybe in between the structural and the compositional factors that play a role in the link between those structural and compositional factors and uh, outcomes of team. And these and many of these are emergent. So you you put the structural and compositional factors together and certain characteristics of a team emerge. And they're really inter interesting to study because they're the things that then create that link between the structural factor, the mediating mechanism, and then the performance. Yeah, the way I like to think of these is they're the type of things that we might want or not want in the team. And they give us some suggestions of the type of things that we might use either as formal or informal measurements of whether a team is working well or not, or whether we have the sort of team that we want. So David, I thought it might be worthwhile just like really quickly going through and just giving these as a list of emergent states to get our listeners to sort of think about whether they're things that they strive for in teams and how important they are. Okay. So, so do you want me to rip through them, Drew? Yeah. Do you want to just sort of rip through each one and explain what it is? Oh, wow. Explain them as we go, hey? Uh, well, yeah, just a, one sentence here. What is team cohesion? So let's let's start. So there's team processes. So these are the actual processes that the team are following to accomplish their work. There's information sharing, so which is quite obvious, which is how the team shares information amongst members. There's team cohesion, which is how, how aligned is the team around task and how well do they get on. There's intra-team trust, which is pretty obvious, how well do members trust each other. There's team potency which is how, what's the belief of the team that they can be successful in the tasks they've been given. There's conflict, which is, as you might um, expect, there's conflict on over tasks, conflict over relationships or relationship conflict, and conflict over the work process. There's team empowerment, which is, again, how, um, or obviously how um, empowered the team members and the team collectively feels to do what it needs to do to get its task done. There's shared leadership, which is to what extent that leadership roles and behaviours within the team are shared between members and then psychological safety which um quite relevant and topical now and uh well, well now within research and within uh industry which is really about how safe people feel to say what they want and what, what they want to say and what i found really interesting david was that pretty much that whole list except for conflict there's weak evidence that those things are good for teams so weak evidence that trust, cohesion, team empowerment, shared leadership, psychological safety are good for teams, which is sort of surprising given that you'd think that those things would all be unambiguously good. <laughs> the fact that it's not you know, unambiguous rah-rah in favour of each of these things, I think, is either a limit of how well we understand teams or a limit of how well we research teams. Yeah, look, I think, Drew, I mean, teams are by nature, very, very complex. You know, as soon as you put a group of people together, it becomes complex really, really, really quickly. And and there's so much context and situational dependencies and and, and interactions that occur within a team. Look at that. 
hard to understand and hard to research and I suppose hard to research consistently if if indiv- if uh, cognitive psychology has had a replication crisis in in the recent decade or so about trying to even just retest individuals and get consistent results I mean trying to retest teams and get consistent results is you know those results are even harder to replicate there are some studies in there that hint at some really exciting things that are worth trying so for example there's a couple of interesting studies about shared leadership that say that there's a positive relationship between shared leadership and performance. Um, and that includes like things like rotating the leadership role or deliberately like splitting different leadership responsibilities and having different members in the team have different leadership functions. Those things, you know, there are multiple studies that have given different benefits of applying those sort of shared leadership strategies. I found myself reflecting on teams that I've been part of myself. And very often this isn't something that happens deliberately, but where it does happen organically can be very, very, at least in my experience, very, very helpful in getting the team's stuff done. Uh, just because very seldom the official leader has a desire or an interest or a capability to do everything that you'd expect of a leader. Yeah, and I think I also found the team empowerment interesting because it's the team empowerment seems to be quite closely related to the leadership of a team. And this paper referred to one, they, they called it an exemplary um, longitudinal experimental study. And what this study did was manipulate the leadership style between, style between a directive style of leadership and an empowering style of leadership. And what they found um, was that teams with a directive leader uh, perform better initially, which kind of means that if the leader just stands up and gives instructions, the team will get to work and do stuff faster. Whereas the empowering leader of team, these teams with an empowering leader ended up with a higher overall performance, which means they got off to a slow start while they were trying to form out maybe how they were going to sort out their shared leadership, Drew, and how they were going to um, align around the, the task and the process. But once they did do that, the teams with an empowering leader that let the members then get on and do their work ended up being high performing. So I'd be interested in your own experiences with this one, David. It certainly resonates with me that I always have this tension between, I know I could do the job better myself if I just did it, or if I told someone exactly what I expected of them. But then next time the capability hasn't increased at all and I'd have to do that same thing again. And so, you know, in the longer term, often means making a short-term sacrifice in letting people do things their own way, do them not necessarily in the way I would have done them, but that over time that gives us far more capacity as a team to do things. Yeah, Drew, look, and I I think that's a that I I find myself agreeing with that sort of an observation. I think that's why we see different leadership styles in different types of operations. So in a construction and contracting environment where teams generally have a short lifespan and they get mixed up and churned up a lot, then we see a lot of directive leadership styles to just get the job done. When we look at more uh, more stable and longer-term environments, and, and I think in here it was really clear in the research that intra-team trust is grows over time. You know, it's something that is very hard to start off with a level of trust. It's something that you just have to give a, t- a team time to to form it and and the same with things like cohesion as well. So I think in the long run, I think, Drew, um, I would say that a less directive style of leadership is going to build a stronger team. I think the research kind of supports that. But what I just sort of shared earlier is you may have to be willing to sacrifice 
initial performance of the team to to achieve that in the long run. So I think this says really interesting things when it comes to safety and thinking about things like organisational climate. That often our ability as teams is strongly shaped by what the organisation allows. If the organisation isn't going to allow a team to stay together to be measured on their long-term performance, then the leader, for the good of themselves and the team, is going to be required to take a strategy which is optimal in the short term, but not good for either the team, the individuals, or the organisation in the longer term. And I think, Drew, we see this when an organisation might have a sudden um, serious incident or a sudden rise in in lower severity, the, the number of lower severity incidents, and and all of a sudden the organisation feels there's a crisis and then leaders need to step in. And we see that stepping in as sometimes having a short-term impact, but we rarely see that that uh, stepping in as having any sort of sustainable improvement in safety in the organisation. So moving on, we, we mentioned originally four categories of things, and we've covered three of those categories. We've covered the composition of the team, the structure of the team, the mediating factors. The fourth one was factors outside of the team, um, which I've noticed that neither David or I has taken any notes at all on this section because there was nothing new or interesting. Uh, you know, a little bit of leadership, a little bit of organizational climate, uh, very similar to a lot of the um, safety science literature in the same space. I think I just kind of wrote no really interesting findings here. There was a couple of pages in the study about these contextual features of teams. So, so if you've got a team within an organization, what's the impact of the broader organizational climate on that team? And there was some studies that said if there's a general climate in the organization around innovation, then the team will display more innovative characteristics and things like that. But there wasn't actually very many studies. And, and of those studies, there was, there was nothing really compelling um, in there in relation to senior leadership of the organization or organizational climate. That's not to say it doesn't matter and doesn't have an impact. It might be more to say that when people research teams, they research what's going on within the team. And there hasn't, there may not have been great research that's looked at the team situated within the broader organisation, and um, and I don't think it would be that hard to study to look at different teams operating within the same organisation, and trying to understand how the contextual features and then how the compositional and structural features of a team worked within the same sort of contextual climate. Yeah, I, th I think that's the holy grail of this sort of research is to have a study that's robust enough that you know. What is the organisation and what is the team? The, the survey concludes with a bit of a talk about intervention research. I, I, I found this eerily familiar when looking at uh, teams versus safety science. In the, the research that actually involved trying to tinker with the variables and improve the performance of the teams was very, very sparse and with very little interesting to say. Um, so there's some of the things that you'd expect. Things like team planning and having team charters, those sort of team preparation tools, seem to have some positive benefits. Uh, team building has some effectiveness so long as the team is together for long enough. And team training seems to be effective, although there's nothing which tells you what type of team training is better than any other sort of team training. And I think you're linking some of those preparation tools back to, you mentioned team planning and team charters, linking them back to some of those emergent properties of teams we didn't talk about. Task cohesion is has some relationship to, between team performance. And I can kind of see that if a team plans its work, it's going to have alignment around the task it needs to accomplish. 
which is sort of linked to performance. Also, what I talked about was team potency, whether the team believes that it can actually do the task. And I think a team charter and things like that can actually create that belief. So whether or not these things themselves, um, processes and artifacts are the things that matter or what they then lead to as a result of going through the processes of doing those things. Yes. So, so those findings are pretty much the same as the state of the art in teams research 10 years ago. You, we knew those things then and we haven't learned a lot about them since. But what I found interesting is some of the most recent studies are starting to put new methods in for studying teams that I think are going to give us some pretty exciting results within the next few years. So those are things like using big data to study team communication. So specifically looking at how the team works as a network based on who talks to whom, how they communicate, who sends emails to whom, that sort of thing. Not just looking at the raw fact of the communication, but also studying things like the content of the communication, how ideas, common language, common goals, common preoccupations spread throughout the team. I think that's particularly interesting given that we're about to have a massive archive of team meeting Zoom calls where sort of every interaction in a team has been explicitly recorded, either the content or the fact of it. Yeah, I, I, I am aware of a study that was done a few years ago now, Drew, that just took an organization's email records and did a big network diagram or nodal analysis of basically every email, you know, who was the sender and who was the receiver. And they're really trying to look at who the key players were, if you like, in the team. Who were the people that people went to most often to um, get, obviously, to communicate with? And obviously, there's some limitations like that if you don't think about phone calls and, and other types of interaction. But you know, for that organization, it was really telling about where the bottlenecks were in the organization and who were the people who was dealing with a lot of traffic, if you like, held a lot of knowledge potentially about the organization. Yeah, I think that sort of thing is interesting and promising. And the other thing that's interesting is the use of wearable sensors and using personal electronic devices to study how people move and interact in teams. This is something that people have wanted to do for a long time. I remember studies coming out of MIT uh, Media Lab 20 or 30 years ago. But we've actually got the capability now not to need very specialized technology to do it. We can use off-the-shelf stuff. Yeah, and Drew, necessity, um, necessity is the mother of innovation. I was actually talking to some colleagues, uh, research colleagues in the and professional colleagues in the US on the weekend. They're now wondering how they can go out and observe teams and collect data with social distancing. And we're brainstorming around how to do that. And what we ended up designing and agreeing with them is in each member of the crew, and these are these are field crews that work with teams of about four or five, they're all going to have GoPros on their hard hats. So it's like when an observer, when a um, researcher's out in the field, they're standing there and getting one perspective, but now they're going to have this movie of all of the individual perspectives about who's talking to who and what they're talking about with sound and audio, what they're looking at, what they can see, how they move around the worksite. And then, you know, expectantly get a whole lot more richer data than putting a field researcher in the field. Yeah, and even if not for the richness of the data, something they said in this study which really resonated with me is they said the reason why we don't have lots more of these observational studies, it's not that people don't understand that to see how a team works, you have to watch how the team works. It's just that putting an observer to watch all of those daily interactions is a really, really hard and expensive way to do research. And so the use of technology can both replace that need, but also, as you say, David, massively even get a better view than having one researcher. You can have the point of view of lots of people. So, Drew, should we move on to practical takeaways now? Uh, absolutely. 
You've got a list of 10 very practical takeaways. So I'm going to sneak in first with my one, which is about the research side of things, which is that we need, if we're going to research teams, we need to study team processes over time, not just isolated states of teams. And I think that applies to organizations managing teams as well. We're not interested in the snapshot. We're interested in how things operate over time. And it's those processes rather than the personalities or the metrics that we have the biggest control over. So I think that's a great thing to be thinking about right now. And that's one of the genuine opportunities of something like the COVID-19 isolation is we're having to be much more deliberate at the moment about who we meet with, when we meet with them, how we communicate within our teams. And as a result, lots of organizations are actively improving the extent to which their teams identify each other and deliberately make opportunities to get together and communicate. And I'd love to see that carry over to have organizations just focused on not having meetings for the sake of meetings or having meetings just for tasks, but working out where do we need a team to function well and what processes do we need to have in place to help that team function. Yeah, I think that's really important, Drew. So what I did try to do, because this was a meta-analysis from a in the organizational study space, so it's outside the safety space, and uh, and it's a review of more than 600 papers over the last decade. And so I wanted to come up with a list of 10 uh, practical takeaways, or it happened to be a list of 10, or I might have massaged it into a list of 10, but um, there's 10 anyway. Um, so I'll, I might run through each of these. So number one, the task is the task. So don't worry about too much about the scope and complexity of what task you're giving people. You know, a task is a task. Number two is pay attention to the structural factors. There's things you can do in terms of providing the resources, the workflows and processes, the goals and the rewards, and that these will influence the emergent characteristics of the team. Team that doesn't know how it needs to do its work or what resources are available or what the end goal is, isn't going to be as effective. Number three, team potency matters. So does the team believe that they can accomplish the task? So belief, I suppose, um, precedes success. So that's um, really important for, for team effectiveness. Number four, <laughs> Drew, obviously, teams with a higher average mental ability and experience and conscientiousness and agreeableness and extroversion will perform better. But remember, it's the behaviors that you want to see as opposed to just the traits in the individuals. Number five, emotional intelligence and functional diversity is important. So the more emotional intelligence you can cram into a team and the more experience in terms of career and functional experience that you can cram into your team, the better. Number six, intrapersonal processes and capabilities like conflict management and motivation are important for team performance. So Drew, we didn't talk about this in detail, but you're gonna have conflict, you're gonna have issues, you're gonna have um, challenges that a team's gonna face. The individual abilities of the team members to manage those conflicts and motivate themselves and others is really, really important. And this is another call out that we've made in, I think, multiple pod podcasts for non-technical skills training. Teams that share, number seven, teams that share information freely perform better. Number eight, team cohesion about the task is more important than social cohesion. So another thing that we didn't quite talk about in the main thing is that you can have people that don't necessarily like each other, but as long as they agree on what the task is they're doing, they'll be more effective. Um, where you've got people that like each other but don't necessarily agree on what the task is, they'll be less effective. So regardless of, I suppose, the takeout there is regardless of whether people in a team like each other or not, make sure they're aligned on what the task is. Number nine, team trust and psychological safety increase cohesion and performance. 
and that this trust is really important to resolve kind of the social and the process conflicts which come up in any team. And that these things, I think one of the takeaways for these, these things take time. Don't expect to put your team together on day one and have, you know, automatically high levels of trust and high levels of psychological safety. I suspect, Drew, unless those those aspects were already contextual factors within within the organization, but even then, that may not be consistent amongst team members of a new team. And number 10, shared leadership and team empowerment are both related and both contribute to improved team performance. So finding ways to share the leadership amongst a team and having the leadership empower the members of the team are going to give you a more effective team. So that's it, Drew. There's 10. How, what do you think of them? Uh, so I think that's a pretty great list of 10, David. The only one I'm going to modify is that one about team cohesion being more important than social cohesion. Because this one surprised me. Uh, this isn't from this paper. This is something I went to look at a couple of years ago, trying to find evidence to disprove the idea of silly team building exercises. And what surprised me was that the evidence shows pretty strongly that team cohesion and social cohesion are correlated. So two people who talk about the football will also talk more about the job. And two people who talk more about the job will also talk more about the football. And so sending a team out on some nonsense exercise out in the wilderness where they're getting no benefit related to the task at all can actually be good for them just socially relating and talking to each other more. And that in turn, it doesn't increase team efficiency because people waste a lot of time talking about things that aren't relevant, but it does improve team effectiveness. Oh, very good, Drew. So there you go. So social cohesion and task cohesion are both important for team performance. So Drew, usually we end with invitations to the listeners of things we'd like to know. You know, I thought this, is, like I said, this is a really big meta-analysis, um, but it doesn't mean it contains everything that's important for, for team effectiveness. And I thought I'd ask our listeners in their own experience, which things stand out for them as being really important to team effectiveness and why? And there may be things that we haven't mentioned today, and there's likely to be things we haven't mentioned and things that aren't in the literature. But if listeners want to share their experience with effective teams and what they feel made it effective, I'd, I'd love to hear them. So that's just about it for this week. Our goal in this episode was to try to do something that we have said before we think is a good thing, which is stepping outside the safety science research to understand what's going on in adjacent fields. So the people who did this study did their homework so we didn't have to, and we've done our homework so you don't have to. Having a look at what's currently going on in the team research space, is there anything big that you're missing out on? Um, I think the answer to that question is mostly no. A few useful takeaways, but don't be afraid that there is some magical team results that you should be applying that you haven't heard of because it's been kept secret buried within the research literature. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and hopefully a bit useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.